If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 20. Acts 20, and we will seek to cover, or at least think about most of uh, Acts chapter 20. Uh, Everything that Jesus said and did is not recorded for us in the New Testament. So, for instance, we know virtually nothing about Jesus' childhood, what was Jesus like as a teenager or a young adult. We don't have any information about that. And even what we do have, those three years especially of ministry in in Israel, it's not exhaustive. We don't know everything. Um, Of course, not everything that happened in any life could probably be recorded in a book, but especially of Jesus' life. John understood that. You remember those familiar words at the end of John's gospel? He wrote, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. What a great statement that John made. What's interesting though is that one of the truths that Jesus spoke that was not recorded in the gospels is actually found here in the passage that we're gonna look at in Acts chapter 20 and in verse 35. A statement that Jesus made that none of the gospel writers recorded, but that Paul spoke to the Ephesian elders when he was with them. And it's actually one of the most well-known statements of the Lord Jesus. Um, Paul reminds the Ephesian elders what Jesus has set, had said, and you might even be able to finish it. Let's see, we'll try a test. Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Very well-known statement that's in none of the gospels, but is found here in Acts chapter 20. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And that's the truth that I want us to think about today. That as we seek to love one another, we must remember that it's more blessed to give than to receive. That as we as God's people seek to live in community, to care for, to love one another, that we have to remember in the midst of all that, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. We as followers of Jesus are called to walk in his ways, in the ways of Jesus, the way of self-sacrificing love. This is how the the early church um, was called to live together as they modeled the life of their Savior and their Master. And that's how we're called to get to live together as the family of God in, in every generation, that we are to love one another. And as we love one another, we will know the blessing that comes in laying down our lives for the good of others. We will know that it truly is more blessed to give than to receive. And so I want to think about Acts 20 and hear how it's calling us to this kind of self-sacrificing love. It's declaring to us that as we seek to love one another, we need to remember that it's more blessed to give all of ourselves to each other and to service of Christ than it is to receive. And so I'm going to read all of Acts chapter 20. It's a longer passage. So as we do, listen for love. Listen for the expressions of love from Paul and from those around him. And also, there's a lot of detail in this. And so I just want you to listen and hear the ring of history, the ring of truth that's here, the ring of eyewitnesses and people that actually went through these things that are recorded for us here in Acts chapter 20. So Acts 20, beginning in verse one, God's word says, after the uproar ceased, this would be the uproar 
in the city of Ephesus, Paul sent for the, the disciples and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the, of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Segundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days, we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Did you notice the switch to we? Luke's back with Paul. Verse seven, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Caius. The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Verse 17, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, 
remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. As we seek to love one another, we must remember that it's more blessed to give than to receive. As we look at this chapter, there's a lot of movement. We're going a lot of different places. Uh, and we see all the movement and the travel. And then we find two descriptions of two different occasions where the church in different areas had, had gathered together. One was in Troas and one was in Miletus. And so what I want to do is trace Paul's travels, and then we'll come back and think about those, those two gatherings. So we'll kind of do the, the journey part first. So as we do that, just um, go back in your mind's eye with me to, to the theater. You remember this theater in Ephesus that we looked at? So in your mind's eye, you can go here. It had been filled with people. They'd been yelling, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for, for two hours. And now the town clerk has come in and he's calmed everything down. And he, the crowd is is dispersing. So you can imagine thousands of people slowly walking out of the theater into the streets of the city and back to their homes, back to their workplaces. And maybe somewhere on the outside, we, we would spot Paul. He's, he's near the theater. He's, he's close, but he's far enough away to not draw a lot of attention to him. And he's, he's surrounded by his friends. They're acting sort of like a, a shield. And if you zoom in on that circle, you might hear Paul tell his friends, get all the disciples together. We need, to, we need to get together as soon as possible. And they gathered later that day, and verse 1 tells us that he encouraged the disciples, and then he said farewell. Uh, the riot seems to have been the, the sign that it was time for him to move on. And so after three years of difficult but fruitful ministry, Paul is leaving Ephesus, and he's putting into motion his plan to get to Rome. From First and Second Corinthians alongside Acts, we can discern that Paul first headed north to Ephesus. Here's our map um, north, north of Ephesus. He went up and probably was in, in Troas there. Um, he went into Macedonia after that, stopped off in cities like Philippi and Berea and Thessalonica, where he had already been encouraging the churches along the way. Um, and it's in Macedonia that he meets up with Titus. So somewhere, whether in Philippi or Berea or Thessalonica, he met up with Titus who had been sent ahead to Corinth to see how things were going. Paul had sent a hard letter to the Corinthians and he wasn't sure how they were going to respond. And Titus brought the word that they had repented of their opposition in response to that letter. And so that opened the door for Paul to head then all the way down to Corinth. And so he went to Corinth and we're told that he spent three months in Corinth. It was probably during the winter not a good time to travel anyway, but it wasn't wasted time. So as we're thinking about all this, what, what was Paul doing in Corinth for three months? He wrote the book of Romans. 
while he was there. In the midst of all this, you can imagine Paul writing that, that beautiful magnum opus of the book of Romans. That's what he did while he was in Corinth. After three months, he was getting ready to sail across as he had done before, away from Corinth and heading towards Syria to get to Jerusalem. There was a plot to kill him. Some people think that uh, there were people heading to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, maybe some Jews, and they wanted to get him on a boat and just throw him overboard somewhere between um, Corinth and, and Syria. And so he instead traveled by land, went back up through Thessalonica, Berea, Philippi, and then over to Troas. Troas is where we find this story about Eutychus falling out the window, and we'll come back to that in a moment. But we're, we're told in the midst of this as well that there was this group of, of helpers that were with Paul while he was in Macedonia, and they're listed in verse four. Luke tells us where they, were all, where they all were from, um, that they essentially represented all of the cities and the regions that Paul had traveled to and ministered in. And along with these guys is Luke, who is writing now saying, we or uh, us, we, he is now with him. And this list reminds us again that Paul is not by himself. So if, if you read these journeys and you think about Paul traveling solo, we've got a group of seven plus men that are around Paul, that are helping him, that are encouraging him. They're surrounding him and, and really um, doing the nuts and bolts of ministry, going ahead of him and making sure things are okay and setting things up for him. It reminds me in some ways of the acknowledgments page of a book. When you're reading a book, you read the acknowledgments page and the, the author's name is on the cover, but in the acknowledgments page, he says, here's all the people that made it possible for me to write a book. And so there's editors and there's publishers and there's teachers and family members. And he, the, the author, he or she is saying, this is what it took for me to accomplish this. And that was the case with Paul's missionary journeys. In some ways, his name seems to be on the cover, but there's all these people that were helping him that were being uniquely used by God to support him. And in many ways, Paul's name wasn't on the cover either, was it? This is God's work. And God is writing the story of redemption. And all of these individuals get to be a part of it in some way. And we get to be a part of it in some way. We're in the acknowledgements page of God's story of redemption. And so we should not begrudge that we're not on the, the front cover as the author of something or that we're maybe not Paul. But if we're a part of it, we're a part of what God is doing in this world. And we should be thankful for that. We can rejoice that we are, get to be a part of this thing. This whole group, again, uh, joins up in Troas. They land there. They're there for seven days. And we'll come back to that, that story that we read about. But from Troas, uh, Paul walks the journey from uh, Troas down to Assos, which is about 20 to 30 miles, where they meet up with him um, with the boat. I'm not sure why. Why did Paul walk? I wonder if um, all the things that we hear he's processing, especially about the persecution he's going to face. And he's surrounded by people all the time. In Troas, they, he couldn't even get a night's sleep. They just wanted him to teach all night long. And you wonder if Paul just said, I need a, I need a walk. <laughs> I need a minute to be by myself and pray and think on what God is doing. It's a good lesson, isn't it? That sometimes you just need to take a moment. We all, um, no matter how extroverted or or maybe how introverted we are. We, we need these times. We need places where we can be on our own in prayer and meditation and thinking and processing what God is doing in us. So take a page from Paul's book. If you get a little overwhelmed or you're wondering what God's doing, take a walk. It doesn't have to be 20 or 30 miles. It could be a bike ride. It could be a run. It could be whatever. But walking and, and praying uh, 
It's a beautiful thing. And Paul teaches us that in, in, in some ways. There's more stops along the way. You can read those um, in verses uh, 13 through 16. But eventually we land in, in Miletus, um, which is down here south of Ephesus. Uh, we're told that, that Paul didn't want to go to, uh, to Ephesus. He purposely avoided a visit to Ephesus and instead asked the Ephesian elders, the leaders of the church in, in Ephesus, to come to him 20 or 30 miles south in Miletus. Um, I think this is probably because he knew that a visit to Ephesus, no matter how hard he tried, would not be a brief visit. He couldn't, it would be another experience where he is being pulled in a hundred different directions. We've all experienced that. I'm just going to go make a short visit to some friends. Five hours later, we've eaten two meals with them and we're probably going to spend the night because it's, it's that late at that point. And Paul wanted to get to Jerusalem before uh, the day of Pentecost, and he knew there was no such thing as a short visit to Ephesus. So rather than risk being delayed or offending them, he just said, why don't you guys come to me and then I can take off when I need to. And so that's the journey. You can see it here. Um, Ephesus up to Troas, across Macedonia, down to Corinth for three months, then back through to Troas, and instead of going to Ephesus, landing in Miletus. What an amazing journey that Paul was taking all over the place and ministering to people in each of these cities. And so let's consider these, these two instances that are recorded for us by Luke in Troas and in Miletus. And I think they give us some wonderful insight into how the church is worshiping and functioning, as well as how Paul and the church is related to one another. And, and they're not completely prescriptive, meaning that they don't tell us exactly how we have to function as a church. And yet there's a lot of wisdom that's found in here. There's a lot of things that can encourage and correct and guide us as a fellow New Testament church. And so on the whole, I think they help us to see this idea that we must remember that it's more blessed to give than receive, that in the ministry of the church, we're giving from and to one another. But here's some things, three thoughts that we find from these gatherings. The first is that the early churches were centered on Jesus Christ. They were centered on Jesus Christ. They were followers of Jesus through and through. This was not, Jesus was not added to Judaism or to some other religion. They were full on followers of Jesus. You look at those first two lines of verse seven. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. Those may seem like throwaway lines, but those are really important as to what the church was doing. They established, first of all, that the church is worshiping on the first day of the week. They're worshiping together on Sunday. It's not Saturday. They're worshiping together on the day that Jesus rose from the dead, not on the Jewish Sabbath. Uniquely applicable to us, they're probably meeting at night. You don't have to meet at 10 in the morning to officially, on Sunday, to officially be a church of Jesus Christ. <laughs> you can meet at three o'clock. You can meet after everyone's worked on a work day because that would have been a work day in that time. And so they're, they're gathered together on a Sunday evening and a time, their teaching time extends to midnight. And so they're meeting together and they have moved this gathering from Saturday to Sunday. And it shows this unique desire to make Jesus central to everything that the church is. And they came together and what was their central purpose? They gathered together to break bread. This is probably referring to the Lord's Supper along with a fellowship meal that would go along with it. And we'll see later that this was so central to their gathering that not even a, someone dying and being risen from the dead, that, that, that would not distract them from taking the Lord's Supper. 
So from the very beginning, the early church is centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's his death and his resurrection that shaped their lives and their worship, their faith in Jesus and their desire to walk in his ways. That's what set them apart. They were the church of Jesus Christ. And so we need to be centered on Jesus. We, we gather on a Sunday. We commemorate that day that Jesus rose from the dead. We proclaim repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. We're seeking to walk in the ways of Jesus by the power of spirit. And later on this morning, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together and remind us that it's only because of his death and his resurrection that we can have life. As I thought about application, I thought maybe there's an implicit argument in here that we should take the Lord's Supper every week. I'll let you discuss that at the potluck tables. I won't come down hard one way or the other. You like that? Here's what I'll say though. I wanna focus on a good question to ask as we gather together is this. In everything that we do and teach, are we keeping Jesus central? Is Jesus the center of everything that we do as a church? The things that we, the songs that we sing, the, the, the way that we teach and preach, the things that we do, are we centered on Christ? Do the things that we do rejoice in and ground us deeper in the work of Jesus' Christ, life, death, resurrection, and return? Do people hear a call to faith in Jesus week in and week out? Whatever other church may put it in their name, we are the church of Jesus Christ. We are centered on Jesus. And that should always be crystal clear as we gather together. Our songs, the way that we pray, the sermons that we have, the conversations that we have, exalt the Trinitarian God who has sent Jesus as our Savior. And so this kind of Jesus centrality should fill our church, and then it should bleed into every other area of our lives, in our homes, in our personal lives. We should be people who are centered on Christ. When you rise in the morning, what do you do to center your life around the person of Jesus? When you drive to work, is Jesus a part of your commute? As you go to work, do you find ways to remember Christ? At home, around the dinner table, in your evening activities, before you go to bed, in all avenues and areas of life, are there ways that your life is centered on Jesus, recognizing that he is our only hope? The early church was centered on Jesus. Everything they did had him right at the core. Next, they were saturated with the word. We mentioned this a little bit last week, but it doesn't hurt to talk about it again. They're centered on Jesus, but they're saturated with the word also. And those two things are kind of play off each other, don't they? Because Jesus is central to the word. Jesus is at the center of all of the scriptures. But there's an obvious love for the gospel and for the word and for understanding who Christ is, especially in this gathering at, at Troas. It's evident simply by the fact that they spent Paul, time listening to Paul teach the scriptures for so long. And so we could say that uh, this saturation of the word is found in the church's Sunday gatherings. We're saturated with the word when we gather on Sundays. We're told that Paul was preaching to these friends and when the normal end time came, they said, keep going, Paul. I mean, preachers dream, right? Just talk as long as you want, Paul. Of course, this was probably not a sermon like every other. This is, Paul is leaving the next day and the church doesn't know if or when they'll ever see him again. 
And he's so core and helpful to, you know, he'd been discipled by Jesus. He's one of the apostles and they want to hear everything they can from him. And so they, they wanted to use every moment they had together. But they're also, they're just hungry for the scriptures. They're hungry for the truth of the gospel. I think that this is probably a snapshot in Troas. The reason we have this one is because of Eutychus. The reason we know about this is because Eutychus died and was raised again. But I think this is what happened everywhere Paul went. That he was asked to keep teaching. No, Paul, keep talking to us. Keep telling us about the scriptures. Keep instructing us. But here we find that Paul went on longer and longer. And this young man, Eutychus, got more and more tired. The, the room was warm. The oil lamps are burning. He's probably worked all day. And he is ready for bed. And some of you can totally relate to Eutychus right now. If you could just lay down, oh man, that would be nice. <laughs> but um, I think from, it teaches us that from the very beginning, people have fallen asleep in church. Uh, being tired is not sinful, just so you know. If you fall asleep in church, number one, know that I see you and I know it. <laughs> and number two, I'm not mad. <laughs> I'm not upset. Even Eutychus was trying. He's trying to stay awake. He's working hard. He goes to the extent that, that he goes up um, and he tries to sit by the window. Uh, he wants this, you know, this is, maybe this will help me stay awake. So he goes by the window, but that was a bad choice. He falls asleep. He falls out this third story window, hits the ground, and he dies. And Paul, the preacher, is the first guy out the door, down the stairs to go find him. And, and I think it's probably supposed to be reminiscent of Elijah and Elisha who raised people by laying on them, raised these young boys, uh, by, they, they laid prostrate on them. And Paul does the same thing. And, and this young boy is revived. Again, miraculous power attached to Paul. What I'm struck by though is that once things settle down, the church doesn't cancel the meeting. And, and Paul doesn't say, well, I guess I better stop talking. They start going into the scriptures more and they talk till sunrise and then they break bread together and have the Lord's Supper together. Nothing could distract them from the scriptures. Like them, we want our Sunday gatherings to be filled with God's word and we want to come expectant, believing that God's word is what we need to nourish our souls and to, to help us because God's word alone is what can save us and equip us to walk in ways that would please him. As I heard, it described, I heard it described by a guy named David Jackman this week, he said, we want the word of God to be in the driver's seat of the church. We want the scriptures to take us where they want us to go. We want the preaching of God's word to be central and we wanna let the scriptures tell us what to do and where to go and how to think and how to live. But the church's love for the word is not, um, and Paul's preaching of the gospel is not restricted to these Sunday gatherings. This is what we find in his address to the Ephesian elders in Miletus. He says this in verses 18 through 20. When they came, he said, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul talks of serving the Lord and in his service, he says that he did not shrink. He did not shy away from declaring, teaching, and testifying. He declared anything from the scriptures that was profitable. He taught the whole of the scriptures 
As the Great Commission states, he, he taught them all that Jesus had commanded. In verse 25, it says that he taught the whole counsel of God. What a beautiful and challenging boldness to hear Paul proclaim that. To not be ashamed to teach of anything that's in God's word, but to courageously and consistently declare those things so that the blood of no one was on his hands, he says. So that no one could say to Paul, you never told me that. You never told me about the gospel. You never told me how to walk in godliness. He says, my hands are clean. I taught you everything I could. Paul declared, he also taught. And here's where we kind of move away from the Sunday gatherings and we see that the church should be saturated with the word and, and saturating others with the word of the gospel in public and private gatherings. Not just Sunday mornings, but in public gatherings and in private gatherings. Verse 20, Paul says that he taught in public and house to house. And verse 31, it says that he admonished everyone night and day. Anytime, anywhere, any place, Paul was ready to share the scriptures and to preach the gospel. The ministry of the word in Ephesus was 24-7, and it happened everywhere. It happened in the school of Tyrannus, which was this public place, but it also happened in, in homes and in upper rooms filled with oil lamps like the one in Troas. It happened while Paul was making tents, probably. It happened while he walked in different places, which is how he could cover the whole counsel of God, because it wasn't just Sunday. People were gathering all the time to hear the scriptures. And in all of these places, he says that I testified, I bore witness about Jesus to Jews and Greeks. I called them to repentance and faith. I love that that's how he summarizes his message. In the end, this is the simple summary of what Paul taught, both to believers and non-believers alike. It was a call to live a life of repentance and faith. That's the core of who we are. I'd say, friend, if you're, not, if you're here and you're not in Christ, the message that Paul proclaimed is, what the, mes is the message that the Christian church still proclaims. It's a message of repentance and faith to turn from sin and to trust that Jesus alone can save you. That what we owe for our sin is death, but that Jesus has paid our debt and that he wants to credit us with his righteousness when we trust in him. And if you're in Christ, we are to live lives of repentance and faith. We are to live lives that are rejecting sin and believing that Jesus is worthy alone of our worship. Repentance, Eugene Peterson writes, is not an emotion. It is not, a feel, it's not feeling sorry for your sins. It is a decision. It is deciding that you have been wrong in supposing that you could manage your own life and be your own God. It is deciding that you were wrong in thinking that you had or could get the strength, education, and training to make it on your own. It is deciding that you have been told a pack of lies about yourself and your neighbors and your world. It is deciding that God in Jesus Christ is telling you the truth. Repentance is a realization that what God wants from you and what you want from God are not going to be achieved by doing the same old things, thinking the same old thoughts. Repentance is a decision to follow Jesus Christ and become his pilgrim in the path of peace. And so we need to make that decision every day to repent, to turn from sin, and to trust and follow Christ. So the church led by Paul in these different circumstances and led by the Spirit and having, been, having learned what, what Paul had learned from Jesus, it became a place that centered on Jesus and saturated with the word, proclaiming repentance 
and faith. And all of that leads to what I felt, I, I think is the, the, the thread that, that links this whole chapter together. And it's that the church should also be a place overflowing with love. The church is to be a place that's overflowing with love. Love for Christ, love for his word, yes, but love for one another. Love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. A self-sacrificing, Jesus-shaped love. A love that trusts the words of Jesus, that it's more blessed to give. Self-sacrifice. To, 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 to strive after that and to, to love. It's more blessed to give that kind of love than to receive anything. This kind of self-sacrificing affection and care amongst the church and, and for the Apostle Paul, it's everywhere in this chapter. It's seen in the way that, that Paul takes on all the hardships of travel that would have been there in the ancient world. And he does it, why? So that he can see people face to face and encourage them because he loves them. It's seen in the way that, that he pursues the church in Corinth, even though they reject him. It's seen in the, the way that, that Paul is surrounded by this group of fellow travelers, men that Paul had mentored and, and men that had, he had encouraged and men who were now willing to lay down their lives for Paul, willing to lay down their lives for the church because they loved him. It's seen in Troas where people are staying up all night because they want to be with Paul and they want to be with one another around the scriptures. It's seen in the fact that the Ephesian elders didn't seem to think twice about making the trip from, um, from Ephesus to Miletus so that they could be with Paul, so that they could see him and hear from him. And it's the love that is overflowing in the church that, that, that is in Ephesus as, as Paul gives this charge to them. This is the love that I want to draw out, and I think we're going to miss a lot of wonderful points within this address, but I hope to bring them into next week's sermon. But instead, just think about how does Paul show love to these Ephesian elders and call them to love? When you look at verses 19 through 35, I'd encourage you to read them again, or 18 through 35, this address to the Ephesian elders. Um, you can see sort of an outline of, of sorts is that Paul describes his past ministry among them. Then he talks about the future suffering that's going to come. And then he gives them a charge in the present. So you can think about it as past, future, present. Here's my past ministry. Here's what I know is coming. And here's what you guys need to do right now. The elders were the leaders in the early church. In this chapter alone, Paul uses all of the terms related to overseer, pastor, and elder or bishop to refer to these leaders. And, and we take that as this term elder or pastor. And so we see our church believes, and I think that this is what was going on in the early church, is that it's the elders and the deacons that were leading the church. Those were the two offices, and, and Paul here is addressing the, the elders. And these elders who were responsible to teach and lead the church, he's calling them to lay down their lives in service for the church, just as Paul had done and just as Jesus had done. In 18 through 21, Paul talks about the way that he lived and ministered among them for three years. And he says he did this in a blameless way. I don't think Paul is boasting here. I think he's just reminding them of all that he did so that he can say, do you know how much I loved you all? Do you see how much I cared for you? Because I want you to care for the church as I cared for you. He's asking them to lay down their lives for the church. And in so doing, he's asking them to follow in his footsteps, to remember his humility, he says, that he didn't act superior to them, to remember his tears, 
He mentions his tears twice, verse 19 and verse 31. And then we see tears at the end of this as they're all weeping when they're leaving. But Paul mentions his, his tears, how he was overflowing with emotion, with deep emotion for them. He says, remember my suffering. Remember that I put my neck on the line because I loved you all and I wanted you to know Christ. Remember how faithful I was day in and day out to preach the truth to you. And all of these things he's saying, remember how I loved you, how I faithfully laid down my life for your good, how I was, I was blessed in giving myself up for you. What an example Paul is to elders in particular, but to all who follow Jesus. Can we call others to look at our lives and to follow us as we are followers of Jesus? Can we tell others, don't you see all the evidence of my love for you? in the way that I act and the things that I do? do you see, are, we, are our lives marked by humility, by heartfelt compassion, by a willingness to suffer for the good of others, by faithfulness to the word? Do we live lives of sacrificial love for the church, for our brothers and sisters in Christ? Or do we walk through life thinking only about ourselves? Paul's life was marked by suffering for the good of others. And he knew that was going to continue. The Spirit told him, and we're going to see later that prophets were telling him this, and he, didn't, he had no idea what was in store for him. He just knew it was going to get harder and harder and harder. And he knows this is probably the last time he's going to see these folks, people he'd been with for three years. He said, I'm never going to get back here. I'm never going to see you again. I'm never going to preach another sermon in Ephesus. We're never going to sit around together and have a meal together. We're not going to take the Lord's Supper together ever again. Never going to see you again. But he was ready for whatever the future held because he had resolved that it in fact wasn't his life that mattered. What mattered was this mission of proclaiming the truth, the task of seeing Jesus proclaimed among all people. Verse 24 is hard to wrap my mind around where he says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul's ready to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, suffering so that the gospel of grace could be proclaimed. And he's calling these leaders in the church in Ephesus to follow him in loving others as he followed Christ. Verses 25 to 32 are this, this charge. And Paul tells the leaders in the church in Ephesus, he says, watch over your lives first, but then watch over the flock like good, faithful, loving shepherds. Tells them to constantly proclaim the truth night and day, just as he had done. He says that wolves are coming in, even from amongst them, and they're gonna try to devour the flock. And so we have to protect, they have to protect the church tells them not to covet money or possessions, but instead to work hard and to help the weak. And he calls them to do it because the Holy Spirit has called them to this task. And verse 28 also, because this flock that they're caring for was purchased by the blood of Jesus. He closes his charge with the words of Jesus and he reminds them of the joy that's found in sacrificial love. And he says, as we're seeking to love one another, we have to remember it's more blessed to give. Not to give things, I don't think Paul is saying. It's 
It's more blessed to give of ourselves, give of everything that we have than to receive. There's this deep abiding blessing in loving and serving one another. What deep love is found in all of these places, in Troas, in Miletus, and everywhere in between. And I'm so challenged by that. And I, I, wanna, I wanna grow in that as a church. Don't we wanna grow in deep love for one another? How, how can we do that? Real practically, I think I'm just trying to see what's going on here. You know how we do it? We spend time together in the scriptures. Nothing knits together the hearts of believers like spending time together in God's word. On Sunday mornings, in public gatherings, house to house, small group Bible studies, midweek gatherings, fellowship of the word. Those of you that have experienced that, we all say there's nothing like getting together around God's word together to draw our hearts closer to one another. We do it with marriage workshops that we just had recently. We gather around the word together. And as we gather around the word together, we grow in love for one another. It's not just that we're trying to learn the scriptures so that we have more knowledge. But gathering on the scriptures, yes, we do learn how to walk in the ways of Jesus, but we also learn how to love each other better. So we spend time in the scriptures together. We spend time together in life, just in life, just doing things together, having meals together. You know why we do potluck? So we all have to sit around and have a meal together. So you have to sit and have a conversation with people so we get to know each other and, and we start to love one another more and we open up to one another but also spontaneous, unscheduled ways. If you want to come to our house and hang out, that's, I'd love to have you. Um, if you want to see a clean house, give us like, you know, three hours. If you just want to see us, give us like 30 minutes, you know, something like that. But we should gather together and we should be praying together and, and spending time in the Word together. Spending time in ministry together. Those that serve at coffee, we know that there's something about linking arms together and working together in gospel ministry that, that joins our hearts together. We, we love each other more because we're doing ministry together. This is part of the reason um, that I don't go to the Philippines by myself, that I've grown a deeper relationship with Jordan and with Jake and with Joshua because we're doing ministry together and, and it's hard and all our flights get canceled and we got to do crazy stuff. And, and you, you learn and you grow together and you, you care for each other more. We need to do ministry together, not, not just by ourselves. We need to spend time together in all these different ways. And the longer we're together, the more we'll spend time together in suffering. It's not something that we want to do but there's no way to grow in love for one another like there is in suffering together, in, in being at a funeral home together, in, in dealing with sickness together, in, in facing hardship together, in sharing our struggles and our deepest hurts and, and the things that we're wrestling with. That's how we grow in love, by spending time together in suffering. I look at this this early church, and I say, man, I want to grow in those ways. And I just think, you know what they did? They just hung out all the time. And they were in the word together, and they suffered together, and they served one another together, and they, 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 they did everything together. And that's how they grew to love each other. The unique thing about the church is this. 
you don't get to pick who's a part of the church. There's people you might rather hang out with, (laughs) if we're all honest. But the unity that we have in Christ is what draws us together, and it keeps us together. And so we we press on into that, and slowly those relationships build because our relationship is deeper. Our, Our relationship is built on the blood of Jesus. We are blood brothers and sisters because we have been purchased by the blood of Christ. And that's behind it all, I think. If we want to grow in love for one another, it's going to happen as we remember together that we have been bought by the blood of Jesus. That we think, well, we're not blood relatives. In fact, we are. That we have been bought by the blood of Christ. And and that's what we do even now as we take the Lord's Supper. That we're remembering together that Jesus, crucified, risen, coming again, that he is what we hold together. In some ways, we're, we're remembering actually the opposite of what Jesus says. We're remembering that it's, it's more blessed to receive than to give. When it comes to salvation, that's what's true. It's more blessed to receive the righteousness of Christ. It's more blessed to receive the forgiveness of Jesus because there is actually nothing that we can give to God. And so as we take the bread and the cup, we're saying we receive and remember once again that our only hope for salvation is what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. But as we take this meal, we take it together. We take it as a, as a group. And as we take it as this flock that's purchased by the blood of Jesus, there's this soberness to the meal, but there's also this great sense of joy. We take it together and we remind ourselves that we have all been purchased together by the blood of Jesus and we are family. And we're eating this meal together as a family. And we're reminded that when we lay down our lives to love one another's one another, we're following in the in in the ways of Jesus what he did and what this represents. That we would lay down our lives for one another as Christ laid down his life for us. There is a blessing that comes in receiving this meal, but it reminds us that we are united together to love one another. It's a family meal. I pray that God would build deep love in us, a love for Christ that keeps him central, a love for his word that means we're saturated with all the time, but a love for one another that that gets over all the, the strange things that would keep us apart and instead says, you know what? We're all bought by the blood of Jesus and that's what unites us. And so let's love one another in this deep way and know that it's more blessed to give of ourselves to each other than to receive anything else.